And for four years, you know, this was our goal. We had it written on the whiteboard. It was 3-15-20, which was Selection Sunday. And under that was sacrifice, the word sacrifice in, in capital letters. And everyone did. <laughs> That's what everyone did this year. They sacrificed something, and, and we were going to get our name called on 3 15 Hey friends, this is Austin, and welcome back to another episode of Gritty and Curious. Gritty and Curious is a podcast that showcases gritty and curious ideas and people. The 2019-2020 basketball season was a breakout year for the Rutgers men's basketball team. However, it wasn't always like this. If you are a Rutgers fan, you know that we struggle with athletics, but that is going to change. And I know we've been rebuilding for a while, Today, we are going to be talking about the evolution of Rutgers basketball. In this episode, Mike Sasso and Dante Antondola, my friends and housemates, are going to share their unique opinion about the evolution of Rutgers basketball. The episode is going to be broken down into three parts. First, we're going to talk about the evolution of Rutgers basketball from a manager's perspective. Mike Sasso is a four-year manager of the Rutgers men's basketball team, and he has a pretty unique perspective on the evolution of the program. So that's what we're going to start out with. Number two, we're going to talk about the evolution of Rutgers basketball from a fan's perspective. Dante has been a devoted fan, Rutgers fan, since the beginning and since we got here and he's going to share his perspective on Rutgers basketball and then number three we're going to talk about how the team dealt with the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm super excited to dive into this episode but first if you enjoy this episode or any prior Gritty and Curious episodes then please follow, subscribe, leave a quick rating and review. By doing these things, you let me know that you are listening and it inspires me to keep creating. So as I said before, the first thing that we're going to cover is the evolution of Rutgers basketball from a manager's perspective. So Mike Sasso, again, four-year manager for the Rutgers men's basketball team, is going to share his opinion on the evolution of Rutgers basketball and first and foremost we are going to talk about how he got the manager position in the first place. I'll just revert a little bit back to my senior year of high school. Uh, I'm a native of Randolph, New Jersey. Um, We had a great uh, basketball season my senior year and afterwards you know um, we lost in the county championship and we lost in the state sectional semifinals. Afterwards you know I took a month off just to, you know, get my head straight, fool around, fool around a little bit. And then actually one of our volunteer assistants um, at Randolph at the time, his name was Nick Lavender. He's, he's the current varsity head coach right now. When he was an undergraduate um, at NGIT, he was a student manager. And he kind of just introduced me to the whole idea of, you know, working with the team from a different perspective. Um, and he's like, if you want to work in the sporting industry, or if you want to get into the college basketball coaching, like this is the way to do it. Um, and it just so happens. So he introduced that idea to me. I thought about it over the summer. I'm like, hey, you know, I might give this a shot. I wake up one morning, boom, you know, Rutgers fires Eddie Jordan. And a couple of weeks later, they hire this guy, Steve Peichel. I've never heard of him in my life. Um, and then I obviously did some research on him. He was a, uh, he played for UConn back then under legendary coach Jim Calhoun. Um, he was a two-year captain on that team, point guard, one of the you know best players out of Connecticut at that time. Um, just great leadership. He was battling some injuries while he was at UConn. And then um, right before he came to Rutgers, he, was, he built the program over at Stony Brook for about 14, I think it was 14 or 15 years. Um, he took them to the NCAA tournament. They won their conference championship. And uh, so... Fast forward to summer going into Rutgers, I, you know, obviously they they released the whole staff, Coach Peichel, the assistants, the operations, support staff guys, um, and I emailed the special assistant to the head coach at that time, which was Ben Asher. He uh, He's my, you know, current boss as a student manager. Um, I emailed him basically saying, hey, my name's Mike Sasso. I played high school basketball. I'm interested in being a student manager. Um, I wanted to see, you know, 
if I could possibly come in for an interview, I attached a letter of recommendation from uh, my high school basketball coach, uh, everything, you know, why I want the job, all that stuff. And, you know, I waited a few weeks and there was no answer. And I'm like, okay, well, what do I do now? Um, and in that situation, uh, I was also living on Livingston campus my freshman year. So I think it was one of the first days, one of the first or second days of school. I was like, you know what? Even though he did not answer me, obviously it's a big transition, you know, a whole new staff coming in. There's a lot of things to be learned for them. And, you know, they're very busy at that time. So maybe it just, my email slipped under the cracks. Um, so I was on Livingston campus. I walked across campus to the rack. That's where the uh, offices were at the time. Well, uh, I walked into the concourse. I'm like, hey, where are the uh, men's basketball offices? And the lady that uh, she told me they're upstairs. I walked upstairs down the hallway. And the first person that I see walking through the door is Steve Peichel. Shakes my hand, um, you know, introduces himself as the new head basketball coach. But it was funny because they had they had a big time recruit literally coming up the stairs about, you know, two minutes after me down the hallway. So coach Pike kind of passed me off to our senior advisor uh, at the time, coach Hain. And we spoke, exchanged phone numbers and I ended up, you know, getting an interview and they liked me and they added me on to the managerial staff for uh, 2016. So, you know, my first day was basically coach Pike's first day and our relationship personally and, um, and the business has evolved and it's been awesome. Awesome experience. It's funny because I remember talking to you like a few days after a little bit of background. Me, Dante and Sasso all went to we all lived in um, the towers our freshman year and Sasso lived right below me. And I remember talking to Sasso about this and I was like, you know, holy crap. Like this kid like literally just walked into Michael's office to to tell him like hey like I'm I'm I am your manager that's basically what you did and there's not many people that would do that and you know Sasser has been making it happen since freshman year and it's you know it's it's funny living with him this year and he's just always on the run you know doing his thing and you know making the this program happen he was the backbone of the program and it was really cool to you know interact with him about the team and that's one of the primary reasons I wanted to bring him on but what was Pike's plan in 2016 and how did it evolve over the years? Yeah. So basically, um, obviously it's, it's tough when you become a new head coach. Um, you're pretty much, you're, you're left with the leftovers from, you know, Eddie Jordan, who, you know, it was a talented group of guys, but, um, in the big 10 conference, it's so unforgiving. Um, I think Dante touched upon it, uh, Coach Peichel took over a seven and twenty-five Rutgers basketball team, who was one and seventeen in conference play. And just to put things into perspective, when they played Purdue at home at the rack, um, that team lost one hundred and seven to fifty-seven. They lost by fifty points at home to Purdue, and that was kind of just you know the topper. And obviously, Coach Peichel knew. He had a huge job to he had a huge job to do when he took over. And the first thing that he he wanted to instill was a culture. And basically that culture was, you know, a blue collar toughness mentality where, OK, we might not be the talented, most talented team in the Big Ten, but we're going to do two things. We're going to defend the ball and we're going to rebound. And basically from that point on, you know, if you defend and you rebound, it doesn't matter if you make shots you know, you're going to be in the game. Um, so eventually, you know, when we got those players who could make those shots, obviously we were, we're a winning program now, but back in the day, those were the two things he always used to say, you know, you want to start on my basketball team. I'm going to always start my best defender and my best rebounder. So those are two spots right there. Um, and he kind of just instilled that culture that I was talking about before that toughness, hard work, gritty mentality where, you know, you're not going to come into our home, into the rack and blow us out. That's, that's in the past. That's not going to happen. And, uh, you know, CBS sports writer, John Rothstein, he's pretty well known. Um, he, he came up with the slogan pounding nails for coach Peichel. 
because day in and day out, we're pounding nails, whether it's landing a big recruit or, you know, getting good grades in the classroom every single day. We're just as a program, you know, doing the little things that kind of just built up upon the foundation that coach Peichel instilled, which was that culture and uh, defense rebounding blue collar mentality that I touched them up, touched upon before. I literally got chills when I was having this conversation with Sasso and Dante and Sasso starts talking about Peichel's vision from 2016 to 2020 and how it was pretty consistent throughout our time there. You know, I love when he says words like toughness, grit, pounding nails, because that's what Rutgers is. That's what Rutgers basketball is all about. And I love when Sasso was talking about you know, how Coach Peichel is always going to play his best defender and his best rebounder. And that's so true. I mean, if you watched the 2020 season or any prior season when Peichel was the coach, he's always playing his his most gritty and tough players. So the next thing that we're going to talk about is how the culture at Rutgers has changed as a result of a winning basketball team. From my perspective, being, you know, working hand in hand with the team, um, and also pretty active in the community, um, you know, being in Kai Sci fraternity for a little bit and just the buzz that and living with with you guys at 108 Huntington, living with nine other guys who, you know, actively watch Rutgers basketball. Um, you know, tickets were extremely tough to claim this year. Uh, student tickets, you know, ended up getting sold out very, very quickly um, as a student manager. I'm pretty much allotted, you know, four tickets in the 200 level for, for my family and friends. And it was never like, it was never a problem to, to request more than that. You know, easily I could have got eight to 10 tickets, 12 tickets. Coach Peichel always used to joke around like, you know, on game days early on, (laughs) he could easily go out there and, you know, hand out free tickets. And, you know, some people would deny him right, right when he took the job, not anymore. Um, you know, we sold out the rack a record 10 times this year. Um, we were 18 and one at home, which was the best record uh, at home in the whole entire country. Um, and you could just tell uh, on game days in campus, like the campus just started buzzing a little bit. You know, a Saturday afternoon game, like Saturday, 4 p.m., our game versus Seton Hall. The campus, the, the, they woke up early, you know, got ready for the game. And then afterwards, just a absolute free-for-all you know out at the bars and stuff like that it's 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 just a great feeling to be around and Rutgers University kind of got that stereotype for oh they shouldn't belong in the Big Ten you know we joined six years ago back in 2014 and and no one everyone was like oh my god they're going to be the laughing stock of the Big Ten and um you know we're here now and we're here to stay uh this upcoming season definitely has high expectations and um, you know, we want to we want to attain a Big Ten title. That's that's our main goal this year. Um, and, you know, the fans and support are, are going to be right there with us. The rack is one of the toughest places to play, not only in the Big Ten, but um, in the country. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited to be a part of it. So something that is really memorable for me and definitely everybody that lived at 108 was after Rutgers would win a big game at the rack. And we get that text from Sasso, like, I'm coming home, like, get ready, like, we're going out. <laughs> and, <laughs> like, I'm laughing about it now, but, like, dude, that, that was great. And, I mean, you, you talk about this buzz on campus on, on game days, and I definitely feel it. Um, and, yeah, one more, one more thing that I want to mention. Um, so, obviously, this year was our first year in the Athletic Performance Center. That's the new practice facility right on Livingston campus, you know, about 25 feet away from the rack. Um, $117 million project uh, headed by athletic director Pat Hobbs and the Big Ten uh, Big Build. It was, you know, they started construction uh, the summer of my freshman year and, you know, they finally got it done and we we're in there. Uh, we got in there this past September, um, early September. So that was awesome. And I would, I would always remember going back and forth for, you know, game day shoot around for a 7, 7 p.m. start. Um, going back and forth from the athletic performance center to the rack, you'd start and see, you know, students lining up outside of the rack or, you you know, you see cars outside of the rack for a seven o'clock game. You'll see them there, you know, three 4 PM starting to line up. 
um, before the gates open at six o'clock to see if they could, you know, um, attain the last few tickets that are available um, to get, even get into the building. It's just completely different atmosphere. So the 2020 Rutgers men's basketball season definitely changed Rutgers University. It changed the way students thought of Rutgers athletics because in the past, Rutgers Athletics has literally been the laughing stock of the university. Like you talk about Rutgers University and people are like, oh, they, they're the worst of football. They, they never have any winning teams. But that completely changed this season. And there were definitely some specific games that definitely rallied all these people to get behind Rutgers basketball. And so the next thing we're going to talk about is Sasso's favorite game. For me personally, and I think as a program internally, was going to Mackey Arena, um, one of the toughest places to play in the country, and taking down Purdue. Um, It was a huge game for us because at the time we were 19 and 11 um, and on the brink of making, you know, the NCAA tournament. And this game was so big because... We were 18 and one at home and we were one and eight on the road. So, you know, the, com- the, the selection committee for the March Madness tournament was looking, you know, for us to solidify our resume. And, and the way to do that was, you know, we got to, we, we penciled this game down. We, we have to win at Mackey arena. And in the past, Purdue has had some extremely good teams, you know, talented, unbelievable you know Carson Edwards who now plays for um, the Boston Celtics you know a few years ago they were in the elite eight just teams where you know I wouldn't even be that excited hopping on a plane and going to West Lafayette Indiana because I knew we were in we were in for it we're we were going to be in for a long night but you know this game um this past season March 7th Saturday 2 p.m I'll never forget it you know we battled toe-to-toe for 40 minutes and then it was a full team effort. Geo hit some crazy shots down the stretch. I remember Jacob Young posterizing um, Matt Harms, their 7-3 center, and over the game went into overtime. Um, bunch of highlights from that game, and you know the post game celebration when we finally pulled it out. That whole 16,000 uh, full arena at Mackey was silent, and you know our. 16 players plus nine staff members and five student managers. We were, you know, us 30, 30 guys were screaming just in, in absolute awe and enjoyment in a completely silent Mackey arena. It was um, an unbelievable scene. You know, coach Peichel, when he, when he came back into the locker room after his post-game presser got showered with water, we were happy. And uh, you know, it was the most fulfilling moment I think for me and for a lot of our guys. Sasso, what is the priority for recruits besides being a great basketball player? You know, when a recruit comes to comes into Pykel's office, what is he looking for? Like, what's what's the criteria? Yeah, so I I think you touched on a great point. Um, there is a mutual recruiting process that a lot of people don't realize when a recruit is on campus um, for a visit. So basically, you know, as much as Coach Pykel or as much as the recruit is, you know, trying to find out about, you know, Rutgers as a university and if he likes the coaching staff and the fellow players and, you know, his visit, Coach Peichel is doing, you know, the same thing to the recruit and his family. I mean, and and to go off on that, obviously, you need to be very talented athletically. But more importantly, um, Coach Peichel looks for student athletes who can excel in the classroom and on the court. Um he wants players that come from, you know, great families and great backgrounds. Um, so, you know, he pretty much does a full inspection to make sure that, you know, these guys are, um, you know, checking off all the boxes before it's time to give them a, a scholarship offer. It's a lot more than just going out to an AU circuit, the EYBL or the Adidas Gauntlet and, and watching them play a few times. You know, you want to meet the family. You want to meet, you know, Coach Peichel says, um, you know, he'll go down to said recruits high school and, you know, talk to the principal, talk to the janitor, talk to, you know, fellow students walking around. Just be like, hey, like, like what's the scoop on on Geo Baker? 
you know, what are your thoughts on Geo Baker? Is he a good kid? You know, does he stay out of trouble? Um, how are his grades? All that stuff. So he, it's far more than, you know, just the simple, oh, he can dunk a basketball or, you know, he's super athletic. It's a lot, it's a lot more than that. And, uh, you know, that's why, as Dante touched on it before, these guys are, are great kids on and off the court. Um, and, you know, obviously there's all those beat writers out there who love to knock Rutgers at, at this point. You know, as a beat writer, you can't knock Rutgers basketball for, for anything. Like these guys, you know, the coaches, the players, everyone that supports the team, like there's nothing to knock. Everything is, um, you know, A plus quality. And um, it's just awesome to be around on a daily basis. So, Sass, you know, Pike is definitely one of your mentors, and you've definitely learned a lot from him throughout your four years of being the manager for the Rutgers men's basketball team. And you're going to be a coach someday. What are you going to take from Pike, and how are you going to implement that into your own program? Um, you know, I think the biggest takeaway that I'm going to take from Pike is, I think Dante touched upon it before, about you know, when the first time he met Steve Peichel is basically just, uh, you know, even as a coach, no matter what level you're on, if you're a big time coach like Coach Peichel, you know, a lot of them are entitled, you know, they, they don't really spend time to talk to people. Coach, Coach Peichel, he just, he talks like a regular dude. I had a 10 to 15 minute conversation with him earlier this week. And, you know, before getting into any like business, you know, topics, he's just like, sass, like, I miss you, man. I miss seeing you every day. Um, you know, how's your family? How's everything doing? Like, I feel like as a coach, you know, he's all, I also, he's taught me to also kind of be like a father figure to players and people around me, um, you know, to get guys to bust their butt day in and day out on the court, you know, you got to connect with them on an interpersonal level and build that relationship before, you, you know, you could expect the results. And coach Peichel does that. Um, you know, so I think that's the biggest thing, just basically, um, sticking to who you are, um, caring about others, you know, coach Peichel, he's as much as he's a great coach, he's a great father, he's four kids, um, his wife, Kate, like just a great family to be around, um, working hand in hand with them, you know, over the summer, we'll, we'll do a bunch of events at his house, um, in Basking Ridge, and he'll invite us all over a nice summer day. We'll have a team barbecue. He'll open up the backyard for, you know, yard games. He has a nice pool, hot tub. And, you know, and, and <laughs> just a testament to Coach Pico, like the food that we bring in, like we're not bringing in that food. It's not catered. Coach Pico is, he's on the grill for like an hour and a half, two hours. And he's just drenched in sweat. He's got a towel on him. Uh, you know, his wife, Kate is helping him out, but he's on the grill cooking burgers, hot dogs, um, all homemade food. He's just, he's, he's the best. Like that's the only way I could put it. He's the best. I wouldn't want to, obviously I don't know, you know, a ton of coaches, but you know, I wouldn't even think about managing or, you know, being on the staff of any other coach and coach Michael. So that concludes the first segment of the podcast about the evolution of Rutgers basketball from a manager's perspective. And now we're going to go into part two, which is the evolution of Rutgers basketball from a fan's perspective. So now you're going to hear from Dante and Dante has been a loyal Rutgers basketball fan since freshman year. So, you know, I'm talking from a fan perspective and, uh, in, 20, in fall of 2016, I was living on Livingston campus in the Towers, which is about, you know, like a block away from the rack where Rutgers basketball plays. Um, I had been sort of introduced to the fact that we had a new coach and things like that because I was at a, uh, I, I was on student government at that time. Um, I think it was like late September, early October. We had an uh, athletics event and Steve Peichel introduced himself. And I was really struck by um you know he came up to to me you know just he was just shaking hands and he I didn't know who he was I had no clue because I didn't even know I didn't know anything about Rutgers basketball because it, no one talked about it because it wasn't really relevant um you know they had struggled really hard under Eddie Jordan um I think they they might have had a seven win season the year before um and he came up to me and just said hey my name's uh, Steve. Uh, you know, 
you know, what year are you, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, I'm a freshman. And she, he's like, oh, he's like, how do I get my daughter to come to Rutgers? Like, I really want her to come here. Like, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I just thought he was some dude. And I was like, oh, well, you know, it's tough to sometimes to convince people to come to a state school, like, blah, blah, blah. And, and then, you know, it was just such a casual conversation that I was so surprised when he went to introduce himself as the new head coach for Rutgers basketball. And I was like, what's going on here? Who is this guy? Um, and, you know, that sort of uh, egged me on to start going to games because back then, during the non-conference season, there might be, you know, 40, 50, 100 students in the student section, and you just walk in, get your ticket, and sit down. And, you know, they had all these promotions and specials to get people to show up to games. And uh, it was really exciting. And they, they even got – I think they got a couple of votes uh, back then too um, just because they were winning for the first time. And it was a light schedule, but, uh, yeah, that was that. And, you know, fast forward to this past year, I was lucky to even be able to go to the games because I claimed my tickets in January for the conference season. I remember hanging out with Dante at our house at the beginning of the season, and we were just talking, and we were like, you know, what if Rutgers has a really good season this year? You know, we really should claim all of our tickets. And then right then and there, we went through on the site and downloaded all tickets for the rest of the season, and I'm so happy we did that because people were scrambling for tickets, and it was crazy, but... Back to Dante. And everything else was was sold out. So, um, you know, the rack went from being, you know, just a really there's like a, this core of diehard Rutgers fans, uh, older alumni who remember, you know, the success they had in the in the, in the 70s, uh, and then when and then when they made a their last big tournament run, um, and then in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, and then, you know, some early, some other success of Gary Waters as coach in the early 2000s. Um, you know, that, that was that core of, of older folks that lived in central Jersey that would just come out to games. Um, and it, it really just heated up from there. Um, you know, you could see that uh, there was a lot of holdovers that were recruited by Eddie Jordan. And it took some time to work that out and make a really cohesive team. And then, uh, it, you know, Sasso can talk more about the team's in, internal development, but uh, it's it's just been a complete 180 transformation from the time that I came on campus to now. And I feel like, you know, I feel blessed to have come to Rutgers in a time when athletics was really going, you know, it, we, all, we all expected football to be so much better when we got to campus because there was all this hype around Chris Ash. And we have a new football coach, blah, blah, blah. There's going to be a turnaround. But the real gem was watching basketball surpass everyone's expectations. So that was Dante's take on the 2020 season. But now we dive into how Rutgers has changed from 2016 to 2020 because there's been a lot of great strides that Rutgers as a university in general, basketball aside, has made over the past four years since we came in in 2016, so now we're going to talk about that. So uh, coming into Rutgers in 2016, uh, you know, it was really you could tell that Rutgers was experiencing a lot of growth and 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 moving into a new phase. Um, I have an older cousin who's who graduated Rutgers in 2012, and you know the way she describes Rutgers, it really was a different place. It was, you know gritty, no one took care of you. There was a certain lack of pride. Um, you know, it was, it was a tough, it, it was much, it was, it was very tough. And there was a stigma associated going to, with going to Rutgers. And that still lingered, um, you know, when we all made the decision to go there. Um, and I really think that's changed a lot uh, since we've been there. Um, I think some of the most physical and, and, and visual, you know, things, you know, are the development of Livingston campus, um, the construction of the academic building and the honors college on college Ave. Uh, those had all been sort of recently completed when we arrived on campus, uh, and the yard too. Um, you know, that's, you know, like a, a shopping plaza and, and, 
and, and living space for upperclassmen. Um, you know, coming into Rutgers and seeing that investment in the future that hadn't happened in so many years, um, I think that really sent a message to me uh, that we were sort of going to a new Rutgers. Um, but, you know, despite all those changes, uh, Rutgers still has the reputation and the 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 understanding of students that no one's here to hold your hand. And I'm a tour guide at Rutgers. And I even say this stuff when I'm giving tours. I'm a Scarlet ambassador. That's what they call us. And I say, you know, you can learn anywhere. You can go to school online. You can get, you know, you can understand the knowledge you can get to get a degree, right? But Rutgers educates you as a human just as much as it educates you in the classroom because you are expected to take care of your own stuff. No one is holding your hand, walking you through what classes to take, um, you know, how to perform well in school. Um, you know, there's no coddling involved. And you, if you don't, you know, pay attention or do what you need to do, you can get easily led, left in the dust. I mean, you can see it, you know, you know, in the business school that if you fall behind in a big lecture, you know, the, the classes are designed to weed you out. I mean, and, and the same work ethic is you can see it in the in the basketball team um having a big chip on your shoulder uh the same same way a lot of students come in you know that Rutgers wasn't their first choice and they're just toughing it out um you know that gritty pounding nails ethic that says we might not have the clout that you have but we can work harder work tougher and work smarter than you to surpass you. It's the same thing for any Rutgers student, and it's embodied in the um, in, in in Rutgers basketball as well. I think the best um, explanation of this there was a, a video posted a, maybe a week ago, um, and it, it had a little speech from Steve Miller. He's a he's a dean at the School of Communication Information. Um, and it talks about Rutgers as the people's ivy. Everything is accessible if you work for it. You can get an Ivy League class education at Rutgers if you work for it. And you could be the top of the Big Ten in basketball if you work for it and don't take anything for granted. And that's the same kind of work ethic that Steve Peichel espouses, you know, from what I've seen in public media and what I've heard from, from Sasso, um, you know, on the court. Um, and, you know, it doesn't, it also, you know, there's a lot of studies that say, you know, when you have really good football, your school improves academically with, and, and there's like more, more people applying for admission and things like that. Um, and it just speaks to the growth that you, and the enhancement of your college experience that you get when you have a sports team that's doing well. And we see that with basketball. And I saw that firsthand, you know, I was running WRSU, which is our on-campus radio station. Um, there had been, they had stopped doing the call-in show that they've been doing for 40 years called Nightline. And this is, and this, this show was at its best after Rutgers basketball games where people call in and talk about the game and things like that. And when I was a freshman, they might have gotten two callers the entire night. This year, they would have to cut people off because the lines would be ringing. And, and it would start interfering with the next show that was scheduled. It was insane. You know, that's just one manifestation of it. But the exposure that Rutgers gets in the Big Ten, um, you know, having a legitimate sports team makes people say, hey, you know, maybe Rutgers isn't that crappy school in New Jersey. That's just like 13th grade for, from what I hear about it. It's a legitimate institution that can produce, you know, good academics and, and, and good teams. Uh, and that's the first time uh, anyone's seen that uh, in the public eye in so, so long. So I've been a loyal Rutgers fan since I was little. And Dante's right. 
Rutgers has not been in the public eye of athletics in a very long time, and the 2020 season put Rutgers on the map for sure. But the next thing that we're going to talk about, and we couldn't have a podcast about Rutgers basketball if we didn't talk about the rack. So that is what we're going to talk about next, the Rutgers Athletic Center. The rack as a, as a place is, you know, there was a great article that they ran on NJ.com about the history of it and, 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 and what, what it means for Rutgers. Um, they used to play the, the last time they made a big run was in the, in 76 and they were playing in the college Avenue gym, which is a, a you know, a smaller building built in 1931, you know? Uh, yeah, they call it the barn and, you know, um, they built the rack on this new Livingston campus that they had recently acquired for the lowest cost possible. And it has such a unique design because because of that cost reduction, the way it's shaped is like a trapezoid. And, you know, they call it the trapezoid of terror. And the sound reverberates so well because the seats are pitched at almost a 45 degree angle. And being in there, we saw glimpses of it in the first few years of Peichel's tenure um, you know, I think one that really stands out to me is uh, the FSU game. I think it was in 2017. It was just really, really loud. And, like, mm-hmm. I just – there was just this palpable taste. And then the Seton Hall game in 2017 was just, like – that. up until that point, that had been the most intense sporting event I ever attended in my life. And, you know, this just speaks to, to Rucker's mentality of, you know, everything's a little – less glitzy than it than you think it should be you know in the case of the rack which is just this sort of shoestring institution but it's to our benefit now because we're able to fill it and this beast that has this reputation to hurt teams because it's so loud hurt opposing teams has finally come alive and those lines of traffic and those and those you know lines of people waiting for tickets my favorite thing to see even is the scalpers. I'm so proud to see the scalpers standing on the asphalt walkway from the the, uh, the green lot into the rack because that means that there's a demand for people to scalp tickets. And you never saw that in the first couple of years of this program. And, you know, while traffic might be a, uh, be a real pain in the ass coming out of the games, getting into them, I always smile when I'm stuck in that traffic because it's, it's there because we're good now. And people respect us and people are coming to fill up that that arena. And there's nothing like that. And a lot of that credit, you know, you know, building up the program, building the APC, uh, you know, Pat Hobbs is is a world class leader for the athletic department. And I think that's because he's a Jersey guy and he understands how to do business around here. Um, he built the program. He hired Kevin Willard at Seton Hall. And to see those Rutgers Seton Hall games when there's just this one man tied to this whole enterprise, you know, he's an embodiment of working hard and getting stuff done in New Jersey. Um, and and I think that, you know, the fact that it's all very homegrown is something to be really proud of because New Jersey's got a terrible reputation as a state. And to see Rutgers on Big Ten Network getting talked about, having, you know, Geo Baker on on ESPN top ten, like that's insane to me. Like that just fills me with like not just Rutgers pride but Jersey pride because you know people, everyone loves to write us off not just as Rutgers but as an entire state, and 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 people are paying attention now. And there, it was there was nothing like that when we, when when we started college. It, it, it's really amazing. So Dante. You know, some of these other Big Ten schools, Indiana, Wisconsin, Minnesota, their fans eat, sleep, breathe college sports. You know, what does Rutgers have to do to create that kind of culture that is all over the United States? And it just seems like it's never really, really stuck here in New Jersey. Well, I think it's already happening because you're not just seeing a bunch of like diehard, like, you know, college basketball nerds that are on campus showing up to games. I mean, there's girls and sororities, you know, underclass, tons and tons of underclassmen. I mean, I always, I'm always feeling in a, in a good enough mood to talk to the people around me, you know, you know, at games and, 
these are people that are being exposed to Rutgers basketball for the first time, and it's and they're a powerhouse. So these are first year, first year students, you know, sophomores, um, and I think it'll come naturally. Um, you know, I there's always going to be those diehard fans that you know have um, you know season tickets, and and you know maybe they'll buy more. Um, you know, the guy that hired me or got me hired at, at, at PNC where I'm going to work in August is one of those guys. And, um, you know, his his kids are seeing this happen, too. And 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 they'll never forget that. And I, I spent a lot of time on Twitter. I, I read I read as much Rutgers basketball Twitter as I possibly can. And I think um, an example of that is like the the culture that surrounds guys like Geo Baker and he did this three point step back challenge and there's tons of little kids wearing Rutgers gear and and freaking out about, you know, making their shot. And, um, you know, I see it most in my mom, my mother and my aunt, and both of them are, are not sports people. Um, you know, they don't really pay attention to anything. And my mother has become a ravenous fan of Rutgers basketball. She loves Geo Baker. She records every game. And something that I found super funny, um, we were sitting down for family dinner with all my dad's side. And my mom was, or my dad was saying something about my mother watching other Big Ten games, like watching like Minnesota and Indiana games and things like that. And, you know, that's that's that culture being built. And my uncle said the same thing. He's like, He's like, my wife is doing the same thing, and I've never seen her watch anything other than tennis on TV. You know, that's what that's what is really uh, it, that's that's where you really see that change because there's members of the public that you know all the, all their connection is that they have a kid that goes to Rutgers, and then they might have just been watching to see them in the crowd on TV before, but now they're actually into it. They're following the players, they're following the other teams, they're seeing where Rutgers fits into the bigger picture of college basketball. And it's already happening. And if they continue to perform on the court, um, and even if they don't, people are going to watch to see what they do. Um, and and the and the respect the respect that's been gained, um, you know, in the public eye is is really hard to understate. And I think part of that has to do with just the personalities of the players. They're just regular people. It's like you know, a lot of people say uh, when. You know, the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan show in 1964. A lot of a lot of young people saw them and said, these are just normal kids from a hard, broken down city that's called Liverpool. And if they can be rock stars, so can I. And that revolutionized music for the next 50 years. In the same way, you know, the way that guys like Geo Baker, Ron Harper, um, Miles Johnson, they carry themselves on the court and off the court. Um, you know, they're not showmen. They, you know, I can speak from personal experience, you know, knowing Geo, uh, they're just regular, accessible people. They don't flaunt their, their, you know, mini stardom as college basketball players. Um, they're, they're there to, um, to work hard, just like every other student at Rutgers is. And it's that same sort of, you know, I'm a regular guy, um, you know, except for my, you know, insane basketball skill. And I'm just working hard to get things done, just like you are in the classroom. Um, that helps drive that 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 public admiration. Um, and and it's really it's it's something that I think Coach Peichel makes a big effort to espouse is that, you know, he, he recruits guys that he knows that are going to be good people. Um, and the same thing goes for Shiano. He's got the same sort of, you know, evaluation when he's picking his players and, you know, Sasso can either prove me wrong on this or whatever, but, um, you know, the guys that, uh, Peichel has recruited, uh, versus the guys that Eddie Jordan recruited are just all around good guys. Um, and they, and they, and they work hard and they're not there for the, for the show of it. They're there to, you know, be loyal and bring honor to their school and and um, it's not for them; it's for the entire team. And everyone says, in all the all the all the stuff I read, you know, in, in sports writing, you know, guys like Jerry Carino at Asbury Park Press, Steve Politi, 
who's been who's a notable Rutgers hater. I've known him, you know, most of my life. He's one of my best friend's uncles. Um, you know, they they just shower praise on these guys because they they they're 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 so deep as a team. There's no real stars. You know, everyone's got their their niche, uh, but the team just runs so deep. And and that's uh, that's just it it, it it teaches kids and it teaches, um, you know, the public that that Rutgers is about teamwork and working hard and pounding those nails. And there's and there's and the the um, the relevance that you're talking about is happening and it will continue to happen as long as they continue to perform on the court. So that concludes the second section about the evolution of Rutgers basketball from a fan's perspective. And now we're going to switch gears and go into section three, where we talk about how the COVID-19 pandemic affected fans, the team, our season, and let's get into it. So we talked a lot about, you know, the evolution of, of Rutgers basketball. We talked about Coach Peichel. You know, this season was very unfortunate because of the whole COVID-19 pandemic. It was cut short, and we were all pretty, you know, hit pretty hard by it. You know, you as a manager, Pike definitely as a coach, all of the fans. I mean, we were looking forward to playing in the Big Ten tournament. We were looking forward to going the, to the NCAA championship. And, I mean, Sass, can you just elaborate a little bit on about that experience and just how you guys got through that as a program. Yeah, definitely. Um, it was uh, an extremely tough time. Um, I remember, you know, specifically um, the date. So we were, you know, after I spoke upon our, our big win at Purdue, that pretty much solidified and clinched our at-large bid to the NCAA tournament. Um, and then, you know, we were, we were on a, a huge high headed into the Big Ten tournament, which we were slated to play Michigan in the eight, nine game. Um, this was the first year out of, you know, the four years under coach Peichel that we, um, we got away from that first four, you know, we, we were not playing on the first day. We had a first round bye, and, and we got, got out of that 11 to 14 slot, the 11 plays 14, 12 plays 13. We were the eight seed in the big 10 with an 11 and nine record. And we were slated to play Michigan on March 12th. Um, kind of just, uh, you know, reverting back to the whole journey, you know, our journey started back in August, um, in the summer, you know, that's when we do a lot of our individual workouts, you know, put in a lot of behind the scenes time when, you know, a lot of people are going to the beach, obviously, and spending time with their families. We're in there in the gym pretty much four to five days a week, uh, individual, like not, indiv not individually, but as a team, you know, we just break them up into guards, forwards, and bigs and each coach, you know, uh, runs their own individual workouts. And then at the end of the week, we'll have, you know, a team practice. And then at the end of that period, we were set from August 15th to the, or August 5th to the 15th, we were in Spain for 10 days. Um, and that's kind of where the journey to this whole, whole season began. Um, it was a team tour, uh, started out in Madrid, went to Valencia and, uh, ended up in Barcelona. And it was probably, you know, time of my life going out for team dinners we played in in that span of 10 days we played four games went four and oh um and you know it was a lot more than just the competition out there it was more of just coming together as a team um being in that laid-back atmosphere we we had a lot of downtime um during the day to just enjoy you know the beaches of valencia we went wave running on the on the uh forget the bottom body of water that we were on but we went wave running. Um, we, you know, went zip lining in Toledo. That's, you know, one of the cities in Madrid. Um, we went out a little bit at night. Like it was just a great time. And that's where the whole journey began. And to put that much time and effort, you know, throughout pretty much three quarters of a whole year and on the brink of making history and making the NCAA tournament for the first time since 1991 um, for it all to just end so abruptly. I, re I remember being in my hotel room fast forwarding to the to the big 10 tournament um we we're in indianapolis and you know i was i always room with my buddy scott share um he's our, he was our other head manager this year great kid he's you know he's the type of kid who 
you know, when you're around him on a daily basis, his level of work and work ethic just makes me want to work so much harder. Um, we were both in the hotel room and the whole Rudy Gobert for the Utah Jazz thing came out saying, hey, like Rudy Gobert has COVID-19. You know, the team doctors rushed out to the court and said, we can't play this game. I think the Jazz were playing the Thunder that night. Um, so that kind of just, you know, that was the first COVID-19 case for a major sports athlete in the NBA. And then um, the night before we played Michigan, we went out to Morton, Morton Steakhouse out in Indianapolis for like a, you know, steak dinner, um, team dinner. And as we were watching the game that was currently on it, I think it was Minnesota versus, it was Minnesota versus Northwestern. And then Nebraska played Indiana. When we were there, while Nebraska was playing Indiana, the head coach of Nebraska, Fred Hoiberg, um, he was extremely sick. You know, they were zooming in on him with the camera. Um, he, he ended up not having COVID-19, but um, they had to rush him to the hospital during the game. And because of that, the whole Nebraska team um, was quarantined at the Bankers Life arena in the in the away team locker room for multiple hours um so after that you know the big 10 commissioner kind of pulled the plug on it um we were lucky enough to hop on a, a private jet back home charter flight um back to new jersey and you know i remember right when we landed back in piscataway there was a lot of uncertainty to whether you know we were going to be able to play the rest of the season the big 10 championship just got canceled and then once I got service, turned my phone on, I got word from Bleach Report from a, a notification that, you know, Mark Emmert, NCAA commissioner, pulled the plug on the NCAA tournament, which was, <laughs> it was a lot to swallow. And, uh, you know, on that bus ride home from Newark Airport, there was a lot of tears, a lot of emotions running, you know, for me and Scott as a senior, senior managers working with the team, and especially for our players, uh, Shaq Carter, you know, Joey Downs, who's our walk-on, and a quasi Aboa, all seniors, um, you know, and coming off, it was just such a roller coaster of emotions being so high from Purdue and then just come crashing down um, to basically the season being over. You know, we got off the bus, um, and as we were getting off, just gave Coach Pikel a hug, and, you know, he said he was proud of us, and then <laughs> we basically just went our our own separate ways, and it was just, you know, I didn't want to talk to anyone for, you know, 48 hours. I literally stayed at Rutgers and just basically sat in my room and looked at four walls the whole time. Um, I wasn't really, there was a lot of thoughts going through my head. Um, you know, I, I'm not depressed anymore, but I would say, you know, it was, it was a glimpse of a little bit of depression. Um, you know, just pouring so much effort in your heart into everything. And for four years, you know, this was our goal. Um, we had it written on our, you know, team video room on the whiteboard. It was three fifteen twenty, which was selection Sunday. And under that was sacrifice, the word sacrifice in, in capital letters. Um, you know, and everyone did, <laughs> that's what everyone did this year. They sacrificed something and, and we were going to get our name called on three fifteen, but unfortunately due to COVID-19 that did not happen. Um, and yeah, obviously we're very excited about next year, but basically currently right now in this situation, trying to make the best out of it. We have uh, weekly WebEx meetings every Friday where basically um, each of our support staff members, our athletic trainer, our strength coach, our you know, operations and academic counselor. And then finally, you know, Coach Pica will speak during these 30 to 45 minute WebEx meetings. And, you know, they're, they're basically just saying, obviously right now we got to finish up school, but you know, whoever takes advantage of this time the most, you know, no one's able to use their facilities. No one's able to practice right now. Um, whoever's able to take advantage of this COVID-19 um, period the most, stay in shape, stuff like that is going to have a success, uh, very successful season next year. Um, so that's basically where we're at right now. So this is kind of the first time I've heard this story all the way through. And I mean, I've we all experienced it from our own perspective, but I, I literally could not imagine being on that bus. Like I'm just thinking about, um, playing like even high school sports, like having your, your season cut short would suck. But like the fact that you're in it for four years, you're fighting for this one thing you have, you know, selection Sunday date written 
on the whiteboard and everybody sees it, everybody's rallying behind it. And then everything just gets cut short. And it's just like you, you think about it and it affected so many people. Like it affected like your entire life. Like there's like Joey Downs um, and the other seniors, like these guys have been fighting since they were little to be able to be on the big stage and, you know, battle away in March and just to have the rug pulled out from under them and just so abruptly is it's it's terrible i mean i yeah. i don't know metal loss for words really and, and yeah. just yeah i mean like that thursday morning i think it was march 13th you were supposed to play or was it it was the 12th the 12th the 12th yeah i remember i got up early that morning i had a call at like 10 o'clock and i was sitting there waiting for the game to start because it was a big deal. It was, it was a noon game, and it was the first game of the Big Ten tournament. And I remember getting the news alert that the Big Ten tournament was canceled before the guys on the Big Ten network knew, and you guys were warming up in the stadium without any fans. And I've seen so many different videos of 9-11 unfolding when the news anchors would get little bits of information and no one really knew what was going on. And I felt like I was watching an event with the level of gravity of that. Like, I know that might be a bit of an overstatement, given that, you know, 9-11 was a huge terrorist attack that killed thousands of people. But COVID has killed more people. You know, it, it, it really made me realize how serious of a thing that we were that we were living through at that moment. And, you know, we were about to leave for Miami, me and Slush and two of our other housemates or three of them on, on that Friday. And it was just like, Oh my God, this is, this is real. Like this is happening. And here we are six, seven weeks later, still at home. And you know, that, that was, I think that was the moment, you know, watching that unfold and watching you guys go back into the locker rooms that like my whole I had been, you know, more paranoid than others, but at that moment I knew that this was a legit crisis and like things were going to be so different for the for the foreseeable future. Um and it was probably one of the more painful moments of my life just watching that that just go away. It was really really hard. Yeah, and and Dante from I totally forgot that was uh you know one of the most odd experiences I've ever had it, it was the morning of March 12th we were set to play Michigan at at noon at Bankers Life that's that's the Pacers arena um we, we did everything you know we did everything the same we we had team breakfast at at 9 a.m um we got over to the arena by 10 30 guys got dressed um you know they they hit the court for a full warm-up but it was very odd um there was obviously no fans, empty arena. It seemed like a, literally a preseason closed scrimmage. That That's what it reminded me of. And it just didn't seem right. You know, we came in, Coach Peichel spoke, and, you know, it, it was just a, a very weird moment. And 15 minutes before tip, they pulled the plug on it. You know, guys are in a full sweat for warm-ups. They're ready to get out there and play, and, and that's it. You know, it, it was over. season definitely didn't end how we intended it to you know we all had high aspirations we saw Big Ten tournament champs we saw a deep run into the NCAA tournament but none of us could have seen the season ending as it did but although the 2019-2020 season was cut short the Rutgers basketball program has made incredible strides from the moment coach Peichel took over the program until now there has been radical change not only to the basketball program, but also to Rutgers University as a whole. So I just wanted to take a chance to thank all the players, managers, coaches, administrators, and fans who made this season possible. Without you guys, this none of this would have been able to happen, and there's big things ahead. In this episode, we talked about Number one, the evolution of Rutgers basketball from a manager's perspective. Number two, the evolution of Rutgers basketball from a student fan's perspective. And number three, 
how the team dealt with the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. If you have any questions about the topics covered in this episode, you can contact Sasso on Instagram at Mike Sasso and Dante on Instagram at Dante Int, I-N-T. This has been the Gritty and Curious podcast, a podcast that showcases gritty and curious ideas and people. If you enjoyed this episode, you'd be the best if you subscribed, followed, left a rating, and wrote a quick review. By doing these things, you let me know that you're listening and it inspires me to keep creating. So thank you. You can get every episode of Gritty and Curious wherever you listen to your podcasts and on my website, grittyandcurious.com. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.